Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. The weekend is upon us, and Walters is a great spot to gather for brunch. From chicken and waffles to Walters breakfast tacos, Walters menu has something for everyone. On top of that, for only $20, enjoy bottomless drinks, including mimosas, Bloody Marys, Trulies, and old-time lagers. Walters is your spot for all of the NBA playoffs. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. He's hitting 250 in 19 games. Spent time on the injured list. With a hamstring injury and drives the first pitch to deep center. Robles going back. It's way back. It's over his head and it's gone. Goodbye. Jose Altuve blasts one over the center field fence. Gray coming set now. Swung on. Driven in the air to deep left. Back goes Thomas. Way back. Warning track. At the fence. He leaps and he can't get it. It's into the Houston bullpen for a two-run home run for Yuli Gurriel. And the Astros are just pouring it on here in the top of the first inning. A leadoff homer, back-to-back doubles, an RBI single. Two batters later, a two-run homer. And it's the Astros five, and the Nationals nothing. And Jim Hickey now, the pitching coach, with a visit to the mound. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, May 14th, 2022, along with MadisonSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. You know, we already this Nats season have had some rather unique pitching performances. We had Patrick Corbin throw a complete game at Coors Field despite giving up five runs. Uh, We had Joanna Doan, of all people, become the first Nats pitcher to complete at least six innings in a game. And we on Friday night had Josiah Gray look horrendous in giving up five runs in the top of the first, but then end up pitching quite well over the next five innings. Yeah, he gave up five runs in the first. He then lasted for another five innings. How often does something like that happen? The Nats did lose on Friday night. 6-1 the final to the Houston Astros at Nationals Park in game one of a three-game series. We have the return of former Nats manager and current Astros manager Dusty Baker to Nationals Park. We have the Nats playing the Astros in a non-exhibition game for the first time since the Nats beat the Astros in seven games in the 2019 World Series. And Mark, we had about as Jekyll and Hyde of an outing from a Nat starting pitcher as we'll ever see. Yeah, I mean, you hate to say that a game's over after seven batters into it, but it kind of felt like that, unfortunately. The combination of what the Astros did to Josiah Gray in the top of the first and 
what we've seen, the lack of offense from the Nationals, especially against a Houston pitching staff that has been dynamite. I mean, let's give them some credit. They've now won 11 in a row, and they've only given up 12 runs that entire time. So it did kind of feel like the game was over. Now, to his credit, Josiah Gray, like you said, completely turned it around after that. He retired 16 of the last 20 batters that he faced. Only one of them got a hit off him. Unfortunately, that was another home run. And it just kind of left you wondering, like, what happened there? They were so on him in the top of the first, it just made you think, how did they hit him that hard? Were his pitches that bad? Did they have a good sense of what was coming? I mean, they just, they were on him in a way that you rarely see a big league lineup against a big league pitcher, especially when you contrast that with everything that happened after that inning. Yeah, it was odd. I mean, you know, we all watch a lot of baseball. You don't see something like this happen. And just the fact that he stayed in the game for another five innings was unique. Because after that five-run first, I was like, all right, the next time he gets into any kind of trouble, he's probably out of there. You know, he gave up a moonshot of a home run just a few innings after that first inning, uh, that home run by Jordan Alvarez in the uh, top of the third inning. I mean, that was some shot by Alvarez, projected 438 feet per stat cast, but he stayed in the game for another few innings. So, you know, it ended up being a game that the final line was ugly for, but it also ended up being a game in which you say, well, maybe Josiah Gray actually learned some things, demonstrated from some growth, that kind of a thing. You know, it's worth pointing out, the Astros are on fire right now. Uh, the Astros lead the American League West. They now have won 11 consecutive games, are 22-11 and 11 on the year. The Nats this season now are 11 and 23. You know, I was thinking about this. It is remarkable the two different directions these two teams have gone in since the 2019 World Series. And, you know, with the Astros, right after that World Series, you get the cheating scandal, general manager gone, manager gone. Uh, over the last uh, few years, we've seen the Astros lose some players, including Carlos Correa to free agency. And yet the Astros are still going strong. And it's the Nats right now that are a bad team in a rebuilding team. I mean, I, I guess three years ago, you wouldn't have been shocked to know that the Nats were rebuilding in 2022 because they were an older team when they win the World Series. But boy, the Astros really have not missed a beat despite everything that's happened with them since that 2019 World Series. So, you know, it's remarkable. And I, I was kind of having the same thought comparing these two teams and where they both are now versus only 31 months ago, the last time they played here in October of 2019. The Astros, yes, they've lost some guys, but you still had five big boys from their lineup in the lineup Friday night who were there in the World Series. Altuve, Brantley, Bregman, Alvarez, Gurriel. Coincidentally, those are the guys who all hit Josiah Gray really hard in the top of the first. They've had consistency for the most part in their lineup. The biggest change they've had, of course, is in the front office and they have a new manager they didn't have back then. The Nationals, on the other hand, have basically an entirely different roster and lineup. You have Juan Soto and Victor Robles in the lineup still. You have Patrick Corbin, Tanner Rainey, some other guys who are hurt on the pitching staff. The one constant the Nationals still have is the same manager from 2019. And that's about the most they've had in terms of continuity. It's really striking to see what a difference it's been and the different paths they've taken. The Astros are still legitimate World Series contenders. They went there last year, came up short against the Braves. They have visions of trying to do it again this year. Dusty Baker still in search of his elusive first World Series title as a manager, where the Nationals are now still in the relatively early stages of starting all over again. And uh, it's a reminder that these things happen different ways and that as much as we all wanted to hope that what happened in October 19 was the start of a long run for the Nationals, it turns out it was the end of a nice era they had that culminated in a championship 
whereas the Astros are still kind of in the peak of what they've been doing here for the last uh, six, seven years. Yeah. And look, as despicable as the Astros have been, and they are one of the least popular teams in all of pro sports, you have to say, like, these guys are really good, you know, and they didn't do well only because of the cheating. The cheating helped, but these guys can play. And assuming that the team no longer is cheating, uh, this team is outstanding so far this year and has been a perennial postseason contender since 2019. Like, the thing with the Nats is the roster now is different, but the team really started to decline the season right after 2019. The 2020 season was bad. Last season was horrible and was going really poorly before the sell-off. That's the thing. The Nats' good players stopped being so good. They got older. Some declined. Some guys are still good. But the Astros' good players from 2019 are still good by and large. And I think that's a key difference here. You haven't had like the Astros get overrun with injury or guys getting older or guys falling off for whatever reason. These guys are still good, even without the cheating. Yeah. The thing that struck me so much about when the news got out about them cheating after, it was about a month or two after the World Series, was the, the shame of it being they probably didn't even need to do it because they were already really good anyways. And as we've seen the last two years, they are really good. I'm going to assume that they're not doing anything on the down low that we shouldn't know about. They have really good, talented players. They have an excellent manager, as we know. And they've established a culture of, you know, winning there. Now, that team, let's remember, they first kind of all came together. That was a team that lost 100 games three years in a row, had the number one draft pick, and then they started to take off. And I want to say it was 2015, they made the playoffs for the first time. 2017, they win the World Series. They didn't make it in 18, then they lose the Nationals in 19, and then they lose the Braves 21. But the core of that team was still kind of on the upswing as they won that first World Series. So you knew there was going to be more to come. In the Nationals case, I think we wanted to hope that there was more to come from that group. But really, that was sort of the culmination of what they had that started in 2012. So that was an eight-year run of contention that ended with a championship. And unfortunately, the time ran out for a lot of the core group of that team to the point that they're now starting over. So I think the Astros were in a slightly different position. Essentially, the Astros won their World Series earlier in their window of opportunity, whereas the Nationals had that window for a while, but didn't actually win it until the very end. Yeah. And the Astros, I think their player development has helped to keep this thing going. The unfortunate reality with the Nats is their player development did not keep their run going. You know, like when you, when a team has a prolonged run of success, it's usually not with the exact same people, right? Some of the faces change as time goes on with the Nats, you know, the last few years, if we've, as we've discussed, the cavalry has not arrived from the minors, like that next generation of high level Nats players hasn't come. Like the team has needed that generation to come. And that's a big reason for why the Nats or where they are. Yeah, I mean, you look at the Astros, they made the postseason for the first time in this run in 2015, missed the postseason in 16, but have made the playoffs in each of the last five years. Like, they have been a consistent playoff uh, maker, which is not easy to do in Major League Baseball. So this has become really an elite team, and I don't take any pleasure in saying that because it was really unlikable, not only what they did, but the way they acted with what they did. But they're still really good. Yeah, I mean, they turned into the perfect villains for Major League Baseball. Let's make that clear. They did. And really, Dusty Baker has had a lot to do with sort of restoring their image and getting them back into a positive light. Um, but let's also remember, 
they've lost a decent number of star players from that team in the 2019 World Series. George Springer is gone. Carlos Correa is gone. Garrett Cole is gone. They've managed to, either from within or outside, keep feeding the beast and keep that team going despite some pretty big losses. That's a credit to them. Like you said, their player development, uh, their ability to go out and fill some holes when they've needed to. I mean, if I had told you they were going to lose those three guys and they'd still have one of the best records in baseball here a couple of years later, I don't know that we would have bought that. Yeah. And, and I think that's the point is that, you know, people can look at the Nats and say, well, they let Anthony Rendon go and Steven Strasburg got hurt. OK, fine. But you should have had other people waiting in the wings, other people who could come up and play for you or figured out ways to get other people. And the Nats have not done that. The Astros have and the Nats haven't. And this is why we have the Astros right now having won 11 consecutive games. And we have the Nats right now with more than twice as many losses as the team has wins this season. I mean, think about that. All right. I want to get to Dusty Baker in a bit, but with Josiah Gray and what happened on Friday night. So, you know, this was a really good test facing one of the best hitting teams in the majors, young starting pitcher, a guy who's performances right now, I think matter more than any other Nationals pitchers performances in terms of major league pitchers. Uh, He had a nightmare of a top of the first on Friday night. He in the top of the first gave up five runs on two home runs, two doubles and a single. And what stood out as much as anything was how aggressive early in the count the Astros were. Gray began the game by giving up a home run, a first pitch leadoff homer by Jose Altuve and to dead center. Uh, Gray then gave up a double to Michael Brantley to dead center. Gray then gave up an RBI double to Alex Bregman to left field, then gave up an RBI single to Jordan Alvarez to right field to put the Astros up 3-0, then gave up a one-out first pitch two-run homer to Yuli Gurriel to left field for a 5-0 Astros lead. This was really something else to see. And, you know, it kind of did bring you back to the bad of Josiah Gray last year because when he's been good, he's been quite good. But his bad is a frightening bad. Like when it goes wrong for Josiah Gray, it does unravel in a pretty gruesome way. But to his credit, something changed and he got better the rest of the game. Josiah Gray ended up retiring 16 of the final 20 batters he faced. He over his final five innings of work allowed just the one run. So I don't want to sit here and try to spin this as a good night for Josiah Gray. It wasn't, but this could have been a much worse night than it ended up being. Yeah, look, at the end of the first, you're thinking he's going to be lucky to get through the second or the third inning, and they're going to burn up their entire bullpen in the first game of a series like this. And instead, he gives you six innings, gets to 94 pitches. So that is a credit to him for figuring out what he was doing, how to fix that going on beyond that. But in that first inning, what you have to understand, if you're Josiah Gray, is you've got an aggressive lineup. I mean, Altuve swings at the first pitch. We all know it. We've seen it his whole career even when he leads off, even when it's the first pitch of a game. you got to make a quality pitch. It cannot just be a get-me-over fastball. That's exactly what it was right down the pipe, and he crushed it. Later in the inning, it's a first-pitch slider to Guriel that he hammered left. The hardest-hit ball of the inning, actually, believe it or not, was the line-out to left by Aledmiz Diaz following the home run, and Lane Thomas had to track that one down. So what you saw in that inning was pitches early in the count, over the heart of the blade, but you also saw the Astros hitting everything he had to offer. Fastball, slider, curveball. He finally started going to his changeup a little more after the first inning. And if you're Josiah Gray, it's a good lesson because you have to know the type of hitters you're facing who are really talented and also really smart. They do their homework. They know what to look for 
They know what his tendencies are. And you could see that they were, I say this not to make fun of the Astros history and what we know about what they used to do in the past, because I don't think there's any of that going on here tonight. But it felt like they knew what was coming. Whether they did or not, I don't know. But it felt like they did. And that can be on the pitcher to make sure that he is doing everything he can to throw quality pitches and not give anything away as far as what he might be throwing. I wouldn't be shocked if there was something like that going on. Yeah, I wouldn't either. I mean, something changed. Something changed rather drastically because he was really bad in the first inning and then he was quite good over the rest of his outing. You know, I mentioned how it can get really ugly with Josiah Gray. If you remember when he struggled last year during his time with the Nats, late August through mid-September, there were some bad lines. You know, six runs in four innings, six runs in three innings, five runs in five innings, five runs in five and a third innings. One of the things that uh, one of your Masson co-workers, Jim Palmer, has said for years is, as a pitcher, one of the biggest things you can do is just avoid the big inning. You know, like, when it goes wrong, don't let it go wrong to where you give up, say, a five spot. You know, make it so that your worst inning, you give up two runs, maybe three runs, that kind of a thing. He's had a bit of a hard time with that. When it, when it gets bad, it gets quite bad. He also gives up home runs. We're seeing that. I mean, some of those homers on Friday night were shots. Those were not cheapies. Those were real shots that the Astros connected on. So, you know, as we talk about the maturation of Josiah Gray as a major league pitcher, that's clearly clearly something that he needs to get better at, avoiding the big inning, avoiding the home run. But I did find it encouraging that he was better the rest of that outing. I think it shows some mental toughness, some mental fortitude that he wasn't rattled. Because that, that is an intimidating lineup to be uh, worked by as he got worked in that first inning. So that he did do well, but the night wasn't the lost cause that it obviously could have been. Yeah, and you got to come back and face those guys again. Right away in the second inning, he's facing Altuve and Brantley again in the second inning, knowing what they did to you the first time up. So yes, for him to stare them down, come back, make better pitches, have a little bit different plan and different uh, approach against them, that's a good sign that he can, number one, that he is able to then go out and do it and then have the success with it. So it's a good step for him. I agree it's the big inning seems to always get him when he uh, is struggling. It is the home run and not just solo homers, but, you know, two run homers, sometimes three run homers. And it's funny, Davey mentioned after the game about how he remembers a certain pitcher who used to be here who gave up a good number of home runs, but it wasn't that he gave him up. It was when he gave him up. He usually was good at giving them up at times that were not as damaging. Nobody on base, maybe two outs, nobody on, avoided the big inning as well as anybody ever has. So these are things that as he matures, Josiah Gray is going to get better at. And it doesn't make it any less frustrating to watch it when it happens right now. But you have to look at this and say and believe that there are enough positive signs in there to suggest that once he irons out these things, and these are important things to learn, that he can be a quality big league pitcher. But right now, it can be tough to watch when he isn't able to make those adjustments and isn't able to avoid those big innings. Yeah, another really good starting pitcher who has given up home runs but has done so in a fortuitous way for him is an Astro, Justin Verlander. Uh, Verlander's had some really interesting seasons in recent years. He, in 2019, gave up 36 home runs and yet had an ERA at 258. And that's because the home runs didn't kill him the way that homers can kill another pitcher. You know, the year before that, he gave up 28 home runs and yet had an ERA at 252. So you can give up a lot of homers, but still be a really good starting pitcher. Uh, hopefully, Josiah Gray gets to that point uh, at some point. So 
The Astros pitching during this 11-game winning streak has been superb. It actually has been more the pitching than the hitting for the Astros that has uh, driven this 11-game winning streak. And uh, the Nats certainly did their part on a Friday night to continue the good Astros uh, starting pitching. Uh, Framber Valdez was the Astros starting pitcher on Friday night. And look, Valdez is having a good season. His ERA for the season now is 293 over seven starts. But you know, Mark, this was another one of these games in which the Nats offense just did basically nothing. Eight hits for the game, all of them singles. I mean, here you had the Astros on Friday night smacking three homers, working two doubles. The Nats had eight hits, all of them singles, just two walks, 0 for 4 with runners in scoring position. You know, we thought that the offense was coming around, and there have been some good recent games for the offense. It's not all bad, but there still are just way too many of these, like, lifeless nights for the Nationals offensively. And that's the problem, is that there's been way too wide a range here. You either have the big nights where they're scoring eight, nine, even ten runs, and everybody hits, and then these nights where there's just nothing going on. There needs to be some more consistency there, start to start. Yeah, you give some credit to the opposing pitcher, and obviously Valdez has done really well, and the Astros pitching as a whole has been phenomenal. But they didn't even give themselves chances in this one. They had two on with two outs in the first. Ground ball ends that rally. After that, they only had a runner reach first base, one apiece in the third, the fifth, the sixth. That one was erased by another double play, which they've hit into so many of. Then even they finally score the run in the seventh. They get two on, nobody out. And even the run they score comes on a fielder's choice that almost was an inning-ending double play. If the Astros are a little cleaner in the field, they turn it, the run never scores. They've got to start getting the ball in the air. There are so many ground balls from everybody. I mean, this isn't just one or two players. This is happening to almost everybody in the lineup. They need to get the ball up in the zone, not chase the pitches that are at the knees and below, and uh, try to find a way to elevate it. And look, contact is good. We know that. It's better than striking out. But contact on the ground all the time, especially with runners uh, on first and first and second, that kind of thing, can be killers because that can be two quick outs, and they have had a ton of double plays this year, most in the league. Yeah, I mean, just to put things in perspective, the Nats this season now played 34 games this year. The Astros have played 33. The Nats as a team have 24 home runs. The Astros have 43. So in one fewer game, the Astros have hit 19 more home runs than the Nats have hit. That's a problem, okay? Singles are nice. Doubles and homers are better, and the Nats just don't have enough extra base hits on the year. And how many games have we had now with the Nats this year where we say, well, the Nats had X amount of hits, but, you know, 90% of them were singles, right? It feels like so many games are like that, where it's like nine hits, but eight singles and a double or something like that. It's not enough. Give me five hits, but, you know, three of them are homers. Like, that's what you want offensively in today's MLB. They outhit the Astros in the game, eight to seven. You'd never guess that. Like, if you weren't paying attention, you just watched that game, of course you'd say the Astros out hit them. No, the Nats out hit them eight to seven. But, like you said, the problem eight singles, and there was only one inning that they had, well, two innings that they had multiple hits in the same inning. So, you've got to be able to string these together. If, if you're going to try to win with singles, you've got to string a whole lot of them together and play St. Louis Cardinals 1985 style whitey ball and have everybody running like crazy and balls that, you know, on the artificial turf just keep skidding away from everyone. That's probably not going to work in 2022. And I don't think they have the right 
guys in their lineup to do that. You have to start elevating the ball. Maybe that the weather is starting to warm up. That was the other thing I thought about in the top of the first with the Astros was the ball was flying. And at first I thought maybe the weather has something to do with it because it seemed like Victor Robles was surprised by Altuve's and then the one after that almost breaking in like he thought there were going to be routine fly balls. The next thing you know, they're over his head and over the fence. So maybe as the weather starts heating up, they can realize, hey, get the ball in the air. It will travel. You can do a lot more damage like that than just pounding it into the ground. Well, if uh, Willie McGee and Tommy Herr and Ozzie Smith and Terry Pendleton can still play, I'd love to watch them because those 80s Cardinals teams were a lot of fun to watch. But uh, I'm not sure that that translates to baseball right now. No, there was a lot of fun to watch, too. I, I agree. That was a excellent team. And it's such a like perfect example of a team that fit its ballpark and its time in 2022 on a natural grass field. I don't think you're going to see that work anymore. Yeah, it's a lot harder. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I mean, most of the time, you know, I've been, you know, they seem like they appreciate me more when I, when I came back than when I left. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, I always wanted to leave a place in better shape than when I came. You know, that was my, that was my goal. Dusty was back on Friday night. Let's get to that. I mean, it's been many years since Dusty managed the Nats, right? His final season as Nats manager was 2017. But it's interesting. He is still a very popular figure in this area. His is a name that still comes up quite a bit. Not that social media is the ultimate accurate reflection of true life, but you still see a lot of positive things from Nats fans on Dusty Baker especially on Twitter. He's back at Nationals Park for this series. I know that you guys got a chance to talk to him. What stood out to you in terms of what Dusty had to say? Well, 
It was classic Dusty, as he can take a question about one thing and then go in all kinds of different directions and share all kinds of insights on things that often don't even have anything to do with baseball, but still are a good uh, reflection of who he is as a person. He talked about how uh, driving into the area, he was stunned at all the construction, all the new buildings around the ballpark in the Navy Yard. And he said uh, he went to visit a friend who uh, is in the neighborhood here, and he used to go there all the time, and he got lost because he couldn't figure out where he was from all the construction. And then talked about in a question about Davey Martinez, because he had Davey as a player with the Giants. So they've always had a good relationship. And so even when Davey took over from his manager, Dusty never held any ill will towards him. And he called him up and they've talked and they're good friends. And Davey credits Dusty with having shaped a lot of his ideas of how to be a successful big league manager. Well, the next thing you know, he's talking about how years ago with the Giants, on an off day between series in Philadelphia and New York, he takes Davey and a bunch of other players to the Jersey Shore to go fishing. And this ends up as a story about how he had always heard that New Jersey is called the Garden State, but all he thought it was from being on the turnpike all the time was a bunch of oil refineries. And it wasn't until he finally got to see the rest of the state that he understood why it was called that. This is the mind of Dusty Baker, where it goes in the course of an interview. And it could be rambling, but it's a lot of fun too, because he's had so many life experiences and he really views so much more than baseball is integral to his life. So it was fun to see him. It was fun to catch up with him. He certainly has good memories here. He even said for the two-year period that he was here, he said, this is probably as good of a period as I've had anywhere. He's talking about both working with for the Nationals and the success they had and also living in Washington, D.C. He really enjoyed the town here and everything it has to offer. So this isn't the first time he's come back to a town that he's played in or managed in before. He's had a lot of them. But you can tell this one did mean something to him, even though it was for only two years. It's such a complicated thing, Dusty Baker as Nats manager, because it's not as simple as he was really bad. It's also not as simple as he was really good and he was done wrong. His two years with the Nats were tremendous regular season years, 95 and 67 in 2016, 97 and 65 in 2017, back-to-back National League East championships, but also back-to-back eliminations in the National League Division Series, uh, 2016 to the Dodgers and 2017 to the Cubs in that just ridiculous Game 5 loss. You know, I think about Dusty and... There's so much that I feel like gets uh, misrepresented with him. I think one of the more interesting things is it wasn't universal with the Nats to part ways with him after 2017. For those who remember the timeline, that horrible Game 5 loss to the Cubs happened, and then weeks went by until Dusty was out. It wasn't like the next day Dusty was out. And I know we've talked about this, but Mike Rizzo didn't want to fire Dusty Baker, And there was division even within the Lerner family about parting with Dusty Baker. And I find that fascinating that there really was like this inner struggle within the Nats organization on what to do with Dusty. And I feel like that that's so appropriate because his tenure with the Nats was not simple. It's not something you can summarize in a sentence. Like there were some really good things. There also were some really bad things. He took a clubhouse that had a lot of issues in 2015 and got everyone on the same page and had two great regular seasons. He also made some inexcusable mistakes in the postseason. And as baseball has changed, he unfortunately had not changed enough. And so parting with him, I thought was justified. But It was never a simple thing, was it? No, it wasn't. You outlined it there pretty well why that was the case. 
look, 593 winning percentage in those two years in the regular season, that's not just the best in Nationals history. That's the best in franchise history, including the Expos. That says something, especially when you consider that every other manager who's been here, when they were expected to win, had a year that it didn't go right. And they ended up either around 500 or slightly above 500 and missed the playoffs. Got there both his years and was basically wire to wire. There was no comeback from 19 and 31 with Dusty. They were in first place. They were good all the way. And at least one of those teams had a good number of injuries that they dealt with. Remember the days when Wilmer Defoe was hitting second for them regularly because of the injuries they had? And also remember he did all this with a bullpen in 2017 that was almost as bad as the 2019 bullpen until Mike Rizzo went out and got Sean Doolittle, Ryan Madsen, Brian Kinsler in uh, July of that year. So it's not like he was just gifted a great team on a platter and just had success with them. He had often the same roster, the same issues that pretty much everyone else who has managed here has had, and he still found a way to win. However, like you said, you get to October and it's a different story and it's perfectly fair to uh, to criticize some of his decisions along the way. We don't have to go into them all again for those who don't want to relive that. But it was fascinating because Mike Rizzo, late that season and even into the uh, playoffs, was saying without question, we are working on it. We're going to get him locked up to an extension. In his mind, it was going to be done. And I don't think he ever expected that a majority of ownership would feel the other way. Now, maybe that was as simple as just what happened in game five of the NLDS against the Cubs was enough to sway enough people to change their minds about him and do that. And I'm not saying that was wrong necessarily. To me, the biggest mistake they made all along with this was not their decision at the end. It was their decision at the beginning. Let's remember how he got the job. Matt Williams gets fired after things completely fall apart in 15. Something going on in the dugout with Bryce Harper evidently nose to nose with Jonathan Papelbon. Then they inform Bud Black that he's going to be their next manager. They have chosen Bud Black to be their manager. The word gets out about that. Then they start talking contract details. They offer him a low ball deal. Bud Black says, no, I can't do that. Backs out of it. And now they have to go scrambling again. They bring in Dusty Baker. What do they give him? A two-year deal. Okay. At a time when a manager of that stature to accept a two-year deal, Dusty needed the job. That's why he took it. I always felt like that was the biggest mistake. You give a guy like that a three-year deal, and if he still has another year in the contract, at the end of 2017, you can say, hey, you get one more shot at this. But because they didn't have that, had to decide, are we bringing him back on a new contract? Are we going to give him a one-year deal, a two-year deal? What are we going to offer here? And what if it goes south again? How do we handle that? So to me, the failure on their part was not offering him a good contract from the beginning. And I thought it was very telling that after he was let go, they go and hire Davey Martinez. What did Davey get? Three-year contract, first in team history to get one. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, Dusty had not managed since managing the Cincinnati Reds in his last season with them was 2013. It felt like the Nats would be his final job. Now it feels like the Astros will be his final job. Who knows? 10 years from now, he might still be managing. Uh, You know, a few other things with Dusty. It also was the peak, I thought, of this like 1980s Yankees-like turnstile of managers for the Nats. It became kind of embarrassing how every two years the Nats were changing managers, even with the franchise being in a good place from a one-loss record standpoint. But, you know, if you look at 2009 through 2018, you had Manny Acta, Jim Riggleman, Davey Johnson, Matt Williams, Dusty Baker... 
I'm not even counting John McLaren, but I could if I wanted to. But it's like every five minutes, the Nats were changing managers. There was like no stability. And I, I just, I never felt like that was a very good look. You know, I just, I felt like, what is going on that you can't figure this out? So, you know, that always kind of sticks with me. But what also sticks with me is this. To this day, there are people who say things like, well, they sure wish they still had Dusty. And I'm like, uh, no, they don't. Because the guy who replaced him uh, led him to a World Series championship, you know? And I still maintain this. I think Davey Martinez did things in the 2019 postseason that Dusty would not have done. And I think Davey deserves a lot of credit for that. Dusty navigated a bad bullpen in 17. Davey navigated maybe an even worse bullpen in 2019. And he navigated that ship to a championship, unlike Dusty. So I think Davey deserves a ton of credit for that. I know some people like to look at the 2018 season and say, well, the Nats would have been better at Dusty than the manager. The 2018 team had a lot of injuries and had guys like Daniel Murphy and Gio Gonzalez struggle in a way that those guys did not struggle in 17. So it's a, it's a fascinating topic to me because like there's there's so many layers to this and it's still something that resonates. I mean, we didn't even mention the famous Dusty Baker, Steven Strasburg press conference prior to game four of that NLDS against the Cubs and the mold in the hotel room and how much of a debacle that presser was. And, you know, there are people who say that that presser helped to do in Dusty Baker as Nats manager. I don't know how true that is. Uh, I think the Nats uh, media relations department deserves some of the blame for that presser. But, you know, like there's that. You know, a lot of my team is kind of under the weather with the change of weather and the air conditioning in the hotel and the air conditioning here. And um, this is time of the year, you know, for mold around Chicago. I think it's mold because I got <laughs> I mean, I have it, too. So it's a little inconvenient for us, you know, because we just don't go back home. We have to change hotels now. And uh, because our all our rooms are are given away and, and sold out because they hadn't planned on us being there. And hotels are in business, so uh, we'll stay in another hotel tonight. You know, if you ever write a book, Mark, your Dusty Baker chapter might take up like half the book. There was a lot there, as you just said, and that series against the Cubs itself would have been a, a monster chapter with so much going on there. So no, you're you're 100% right, and it is such a fascinating what if. Like, what if they do bring him back? What happens in 2018? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I know their pitching staff was awful in 18. Uh, in a way they had not been in a long time. Maybe Dusty gets more out of them or not, but I, I agree with you, and I think it's an important point to make about Davey Martinez. He gets a lot of credit for his work in the clubhouse and his ability to keep everybody together and you know the 19 and 31 stay in the fight, go 1-0 every day thing, and he deserves a ton of credit for all that. What he doesn't get enough credit for is how he actually managed down the stretch and especially in the postseason because you're right, he did things in a way that others who've managed this team have not done, and I don't know that they would have done the same situation. He understood that come October, with the roster that they had, how to get the most out of the best players he had and try to minimize how much he needed to use the rest of the roster. And that was a brilliant job that he did during that postseason run that I think he deserves more credit for. You can say the other seasons haven't gone well, certainly, you can say whether or not what's happening right now is his fault or not. But in addition to being a great motivator within the clubhouse, he was a great in-game manager in October of 2019. 
Yeah, the urgency that he displayed, the aggressive usage of starters as relievers, especially Patrick Corbin, basically cutting down the bullpen to just two guys and Sean Doolittle and Daniel Hudson. Dusty didn't do that in 17. Remember, Dusty in game five against the Cubs brought in Sammy Solis for Max Scherzer. Brought in Sammy Solis for Max Scherzer, okay? And I'm not going to go any further than that because I'm going to get all worked up here, right? We're trying to have a nice conversation here. But, (laughs) you know, the Nats that year, right, they had... Madsen, Doolittle, Kinsler, Matt Albers was good that year. And Dusty goes to Solis. He had this thing about Sammy Solis. He was like Dusty's Wander Suero or Victor Rana, <laughs> what those guys are to Davey. He, D- Dusty loves Solis. And we all know how that worked out. But Al, it's been five years. They've won a World Series. It's okay. It's okay. I got to calm down with that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com. You get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt as this homestand goes on. Uh, wear your Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt to the ballpark. Send us a photo. We'll tweet it out for you. You can get your Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. And we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And right now, we're going to leave you with a voice memo from Kelly in Alexandria with her memories of the Nationals' 2012 National League East division-winning season. Uh, If you want to submit your memories of that season as we're celebrating the 10-year anniversary of that year, you can let us know with a voice memo or an email at natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Hey, everyone. This is Kelly from Alexandria. There are so many memories to choose from, from the 2012 Nats series, um, but here's what I decided to share. Um, These memories have to do with Michael Morse. As everyone now knows, his walk-up song was Take On Me. At some early games in the season, there were some fans who sang the high notes in a day or two when that part of the song played. I was one of them and I thought it was fun, but it hadn't gotten so popular that they stopped the music at that part and everyone sang. But I remember watching a game on Masson, it was probably late May or June, and Morse came up to bat, and even though I was watching on TV, I could hear the fans singing those notes over the loudspeaker, and that felt like the beginning of it really taking hold. Other memory with Morse is from a game against the Cardinals, when Morse hit what was originally called a bases-clearing three-run double. But then it was ruled a grand slam, and the umpires made Morse and the other base runners go back to their starting positions, and he reenacted, swinging at the pitch, and everyone ran around the bases again. It was clear that he and Yadi and Molina were having fun with the whole situation. My friends and I love whenever we see someone wearing a Morse jersey at the park. Thanks, Mikey Moe, for the memories. 